Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking hard cider with a shot of fireball. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a glass of white wine, and on this week's episode, we are going to look at the crimes of Ted Bundy. Bundy was one of the most prolific serial killers, and through his interviews gave a chilling image of how even when someone looks like the perfect guy, they may be hiding something sinister inside. Theodore Robert Cowell was born on November 24, 1946 to Louise Cowell in Burlington, Vermont at the Elizabeth Ludd Home for Unwed Mothers. He never knew who his father was. Louise claimed she had been seduced by a war veteran named Jack Worthington, who abandoned her soon after she became pregnant with Ted. For the first three years of his life, Bundy lived in the Philadelphia home of his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell, who raised him as their son to avoid the social stigma that accompanied birth outside of wedlock. Family, friends, and even young Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his mother was his older sister. He eventually discovered the truth. Biographer and true crime writer Anne Rule, who knew Bundy personally, believed that he did not find out until 1969 when he located his original birth certificate from Vermont. Bundy expressed a lifelong resentment towards his mother for never talking to him about his real father and for leaving him to discover his true parentage for himself. In 1950, Louise changed her surname from Colwell to Nelson and at the urging of multiple family members, left Philadelphia with Ted to live in Tacoma, Washington. In 1951, Louise met Johnny Paul Pepper Bundy. They married later that year and Johnny Bundy formally adopted Ted. Johnny and Louise conceived four children of their own and though Johnny tried to include his adoptive son in camping trips and other family activities, Activities, Ted remained distant. He later complained to his girlfriend that Johnny wasn't his real father, quote-unquote wasn't very bright, and quote-unquote didn't make much money. During high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. When he reached age 18, the details of these incidents were expunged from his record, which is the standard. After graduating from the University of Washington in 1972, Bundy joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. After Evans was re-elected, Bundy was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. In early 1973, despite mediocre LSAT scores, Bundy was accepted into the law school of UPS and the University of Utah on the strengths of letters a recommendation from Evans, Davis, and several UW psychology professors. There is no consensus on when or where Bundy began killing women. He told different stories to different people and refused to divulge the specifics of his earliest crimes, even as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens of later murders in the days preceding his execution. Shortly after midnight on January 4, 1974, Bundy entered the basement apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks. Sparks was a dancer and student at UW. After attacking Sparks brutally with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the same rod, causing extensive internal injuries. She remained unconscious for 10 days but survived with permanent physical and mental disabilities. In the early morning hours of February 1st, Bundy broke into the basement apartment of Linda Ann Keeley, another UW undergraduate. He beat her unconscious and dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots. 
On March 12th, Donna Manson, a 19-year-old student at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, left her dorm to attend a concert on campus but never arrived. On April 17th, Susan Brancourt disappeared while on her way to her dorm room after an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg. On May 6th, Roberta Parks left her dormitory at Oregon State University in Corvallis to have coffee with friends at the Memorial Union but never arrived. Detectives from the King County and Seattle Police Departments grew increasingly concerned. There was no significant physical evidence, and the women had little in common apart from being young, attractive, white college students with long hair parted in the middle. On June 1st, Brenda Ball disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien near Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. In the early hours of June 11th, UW student Georgianne Hawkins vanished while walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dormitory residence and her sorority house. Bundy later recounted that he lured Hawkins to his car and knocked her unconscious with a crowbar. After handcuffing her, he drove her to a suburb of Seattle where he strangled her and spent the entire night with her body. He revisited her body at least three times. After Hawkins' disappearance was publicized, witnesses came forward to report seeing him that night in an alley behind a nearby dormitory. He was on crutches with a leg cast and was struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman recalled that the man asked her to help him carry the case to his car, a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. Reports of the six missing women and Sparks' brutal beating appeared in newspapers and on television throughout Washington and Oregon. There was pressure on law enforcement to solve the disappearances, but the lack of physical evidence severely hampered them. Police could not provide reporters with the little information that was available for fear of compromising the investigation. Similarities between the victims were noted, including the disappearances all taking place at night, usually near ongoing construction work within a week of midterm or final exams. All of the victims were wearing slacks or blue jeans, and at most crime scenes, there was a sighting of a man wearing a cast or a sling and driving a brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. Bundy approached Janice Ann Ott, a probation caseworker at the Kings County Juvenile Court, with the sailboat story and watched her leave the beach in his company. About four hours later, Denise Marie Naslon, a 19-year-old woman who was studying to become a computer programmer, left a picnic to go to the restroom but never returned. On September 6th, two hunters came across the skeletal remains of Ott and Nathlin. An extra femur and several vertebrae found at the site were later identified by Bundy as those of Hawkins. Six months later, forestry students from Green River Community College discovered the skulls and mandibles of Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball on Taylor Mountain, where Bundy frequently hiked. Manson's remains were never recovered. In August 1974, Bundy received an acceptance from the University of Utah Law School and moved to Salt Lake City. On September 2nd, he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho, then disposed of the remains in a nearby river. On October 2nd, he kidnapped 16-year-old Nancy Wilcock in Holiday. Her remains were buried near Capitol Reef National Park, but were never found. Melissa Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Midvale, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. Her new body was found in a nearby mountainous area nine days later. Postmortem examination indicated that she may have remained alive for up to seven days following her disappearance. 
On October 31st, Laura Ann Elm disappeared after leaving a cafe just after midnight. Her naked body was found by hikers. Both women have been beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. In the late in the late afternoon of November 8th, Bundy approached 18-year-old telephone operator Carol Durange at Fashion Place Mall in Murray. He identified himself as quote-unquote Officer Roseland of the Murray Police Department and told Carol that someone had attempted to break into her car. He asked her to accompany him to the station to file a complaint. When Carol pointed out to Bundy that he was driving on a road that did not lead to the police station, he immediately pulled onto the shoulder and attempted to handcuff her. During their struggle, he inadvertently fastened both handcuffs to the same wrist, and Carol was able to open the car door and escape. Later that evening, Deborah Kent, a 17-year-old student at Viewmont High School in Bountiful, disappeared after leaving a theater production at the school to pick up her brother. Outside the auditorium, investigators found a key that unlocked the handcuffs removed from Carol Durant's wrist. On April 12th, a 23-year-old registered nurse named Karen Campbell disappeared while walking down a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room at the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village. On March 15th, ski instructor Julie Cunningham disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend. Bundy later told Colorado investigators that he approached Cunningham on crutches and asked her to help carry his ski boots to his car, where he clubbed and handcuffed her, then assaulted and strangled her at a second site near rifle. Denise Oliverson disappeared near the Utah-Colorado border in Grand Junction on April 6th while riding her bicycle to her parents' house. On May 6th, Bundy lured 12-year-old Lynette Don Culver from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho. He drowned and then sexually assaulted her in his hotel room before disposing of her body in a river. On June 28th, Susan Curtis vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo. The bodies of Wilcox, Kent, Cunningham, Oliverson, Culver, and Curtis were never recovered. On August 16, 1975, Bundy was arrested by Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger. Hayward observed Bundy cruising a residential area in the pre-dawn hours and fleeing at high speed after seeing the patrol car. Hayward noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats and searched the car. He found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. In September, Bundy sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a Midvale teenager. Utah police impounded it and FBI technicians searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from Karen Campbell's body. Later, they also identified hair strands quote-unquote microscopically indistinguishable from those of Melissa Smith and Carol Durant. On October 2nd, detectives put Bundy into a lineup. Durant immediately identified him as Officer Roseland, and witnesses from Bountiful recognized him as the stranger at the high school auditorium. In February 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durant kidnapping. On the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, Bundy waived his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. 
In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying a quote-unquote escape kit that included roadmaps, airline schedules, and a social security card, and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Karen Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January 1977. On June 7, 1977, Bundy was transported 40 miles from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. He had elected to serve as his own attorney and thus was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. During a recess, he asked to visit the courthouse's law library to research his case. While shielded from his guard's view behind a bookcase, he opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story, injuring his right ankle as he landed. After shedding an outer layer of clothing, he walked through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts, then hiked southward onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. On June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake. Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of the Aspen Golf Course. He drove back into Aspen, where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over. By the time he had been captured, he had been on the run for six days. In the car were maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Karen Campbell's body, indicating that his escape was not a spontaneous act, but had been planned. On the night of December 30th, while most of the jail staff was on Christmas break and non-violent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body, and climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer who was not there at the time. Bundy changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet and walked out the front door. After stealing a car, Bundy drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car soon broke down in the mountains on Interstate 70. He hitchhiked to Ville. He then took a bus to Denver and boarded a morning flight to Chicago. In Glenwood Springs, the jail's skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon on December 31st, more than 17 hours later. By then, Bundy was already in Chicago. From Chicago, Bundy traveled by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan. He stole a car and drove south to Atlanta, where he boarded a bus and arrived in Tallahassee, Florida on the morning of January 8th. He stayed for one night in the Holiday Inn Hotel before he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at a boarding house near the Florida State University campus. In the early hours of January 15th, 1978, Bundy entered FSU's Chai Omega sorority house through a rear door that had a faulty locking mechanism. At around 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, 21, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept. He then strangled her with a nylon stocking. He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, bit deeply into her left buttocks, and sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. In the adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder. And Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, 
and a crushed finger. Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack. Bundy escaped, but not before being seen by sorority sister Nita Neary, who came through the back door and saw Bundy as he was exiting the sorority house. Tallahassee detectives determined that the four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes, with an earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard nothing. After leaving the sorority house, Bundy broke into a basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked FSU student Cheryl Thomas, dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. On Thomas's bed, police found a semen stain and a pantyhose mask containing two hairs that were, quote, similar to Bundy's in class and characteristic, end quote. Kimberly Diane Leach was summoned to her homeroom by a teacher to retrieve a forgotten purse. She never returned to class. Seven weeks later, after an intensive search, her partially mummified remains were found in a pig farrowing shed. She appeared to have been raped, then killed by neck lacerations with a knife. On February 12th, with insufficient cash to pay his overdue rent and a growing suspicion that police were closing in on him, Bundy stole a car and fled Tallahassee, driving westward across the Florida Panhandle. Three days later, at around 1 a.m., he was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee near the Alabama state line after a quote-unquote once and warrants check showed his Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. When told he was under arrest, Bundy kicked Lee's legs out from under him and took off running. Lee fired two warning shots, then gave chase and tackled him. The two struggled over Lee's gun before the officer finally subdued and arrested Bundy. Following a change of venue to Miami, Bundy stood trial for the Chi Omega homicides and assaults in June 1979. At trial, crucial testimony came from Chi Omega sorority members Connie Hastings, who placed Bundy in the vicinity of the Chi Omega house that evening, and Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the sorority house clutching the oak murder weapon. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting him on July 24, 1979, of the Bowman and Levy murders. Three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults on Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. Trial Judge Edward Cower imposed death sentences for the murder convictions. Six months later, a second trial took place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach. Bundy was found guilty once again, and after less than eight hours' deliberation, due principally to the testimony of an eyewitness who saw him leading Kimberly from the schoolyard to the stolen van, during the penalty phase of the trial, Bundy took advantage of an obscure Florida law providing that a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage. As he was questioning former Washington State DES co-worker Carol Ann Boone, who had moved to Florida to be near Bundy, had testified on his behalf during both trials and was again testifying on his behalf as a character witness, he asked her to marry him. She accepted and Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married. On February 10th, 1980, Bundy was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. As the sentence was announced, he reportedly stood and shouted, quote, tell the jury they were wrong, end quote. This third death sentence would be the one that was ultimately carried out nearly nine years later. 
Bundy was executed by electric chair at 9.16 a.m. on January 24th, 1989. His last words were, quote, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends, end quote. This was a reference to his attorneys Jim Coleman and Methodist minister Fred Lawrence. Jenny, what are your thoughts on Ted Bundy? He is so vile and evil and disgusting. And I've kind of avoided learning anything about him for like as long as I could just because I don't want to give in to the whole, I guess, like glamorization of Ted Bundy. It's crazy how many people survived his attacks, but horrifying at how many people were killed. How many women's names did we just read in this? And that he escaped like twice. I know people always want to talk about how smart he was. And I do think he's smart maybe smarter than like the average killer because he was like one step ahead of police but he also got lucky a lot in different things and can we talk about how arrogant he was he thought he was so much smarter than everyone his luck ran out his smarts didn't help him survive i don't know why we have to keep like glamorizing his legacy like i don't think us talking about him is glamorizing his legacy but people always want to mention oh he was so charming he was so good looking and that's how he got away with things the idea of serial killers killers were like kind of new back when he was really committing his crimes and when he stood trial. So people really were shocked that, oh, this like somewhat decent looking man. It's modern times now and we know that like a killer can live next door to you and be the nicest person alive. It's hard to know who to trust because of that, but you can't just like judge someone because they're attractive. And I know we talked about that a lot with the Jeffrey Dahmer case and how good looking people get good traits given to them because of that, whether we kind of do it subconsciously. What do you think? I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I think that we have a really bad habit of glorifying serial killers and any other like infamous person. I understand why it's a fascination. I think that when you think of a serial killer, you should have a negative reaction to them. I think it's really important that when talking about any serial killer, that we focus on the brutality of their action and we focus on finding ways to make sure that they are caught and prosecuted and that something like this never happens again. A key component in catching many serial killers and other offenders is criminal or psychological profiling. Even though it is a powerful tool, there have been some criticisms. Psychological profiling is described as a method of suspect identification which seeks to identify a person's mental, emotional, and personality characteristics based on things done or left at the crime scene. There are two major assumptions made when it comes to offender profiling, behavior consistency and homology. Behavior consistency is the idea that an offender's crimes will tend to be similar to one another. Homology is the idea that similar crimes are committed by similar offenders. The most routinely used typology in profiling is categorizing crime scenes and by extension offenders' personalities as either, quote, organized or, quote, disorganized. There are three leading approaches in the area of offender profiling. The criminal investigative approach, the clinical practitioner approach, and the scientific statistical approach. The criminal investigative approach is what is used by law enforcement and more specifically by the Behavioral Analysis Unit, the BAU, within the FBI. The BAU, quote, assists law enforcement agencies by their review and assessment of a criminal act by interpreting the offender's behavior during the crime and the interactions between the offender and the victim during the commission of the crime and was expressed in the crime scene, end quote. The clinical practitioner 
practitioner approach focuses on looking at each case as unique, making the approach very individualistic. One practitioner, Turco, believed that all violent crimes were a result of the mother-child struggle where female victims represent the offender's mother. The scientific approach relies heavily on the multivariate analysis of behaviors and any other information from the crime scene that could lead to the offender's characteristics or psychological processes. According to this approach, elements of the profile are developed by comparing the results of the analysis to those of previously caught offenders. There is a lack of scientific research and evidence to support psychological profiling as useful in criminal investigations. Critics question the reliability, validity, and utility of criminal profiles generally provided in police investigations. The more recent attempts at research into profiling's effectiveness have prompted researchers to label it as pseudoscientific. Malcolm Gladwell of The New Yorker compared profiling to astrology and cold reading. The profession of criminal profiling is highly unregulated. There is no governing body which determines who is and who is not qualified to be a criminal profiler, and therefore those who identify themselves as criminal profilers may range from someone with minimal to someone with extensive experience in the realm of criminal investigation. Jenny, what do you think of the reliability of profiling, and do you think it should be used in investigations? I was definitely under the impression that profiling was backed scientifically or like medically somehow so that's really surprising to me that it's unregulated and that there's like a range of people that can like do it so that's kind of like disappointing to see I'm sure someone out there watches the show Criminal Minds or has seen the show Criminal Minds but that entire show is about profiling so with stuff like that out there it definitely makes it seem like it's like a legitimate thing I don't really know like what success rates would be but I did always wonder like how they pinpointed these specific things I didn't know it was about like all the stuff at the scene of the crime and whatnot so I think that's interesting I think I probably fall most in line with the criminal investigative approach because I do think that there are certain patterns for certain types of criminals and certain types of crimes there's been a serial killers that I think law enforcement has learned like what provokes some types of killers and why they target certain groups of people why they stay in a certain area etc but I don't think you can kind of look at everything the same so maybe like a little bit of all three of the approaches because everyone is different even though this person could kill for a similar reason as that person you know all the approaches sound really legitimate I don't know if I would call it a pseudoscience but it definitely sounds like there should be like some regulation if it's going to be continued to be of use which I don't really see like profiling stopping anytime soon so I'm inclined to trust profiling but I would say like as long as the profile isn't like set in stone and like people are staunch in their approach and that they don't want things to change if it doesn't fit their profile which I do think that we've seen sometimes I mean this isn't necessarily profiling but you know we see how police are like you know so sure it's this person or so sure it's this type of person and then they change the story of the crime to really fit into like the narrative that they want what do you think so i definitely agree with you that calling it pseudoscientific is a bit too harsh i think that it does have legitimate 
use in criminal investigations. And like you said, as long as you're willing to adapt and change and you use that as as a general tool to point you in the right direction, I have no problem with psychological profiling. I will say one of the things that definitely needs to change is it has to be some sort of regulation in it. Whether you support profiling or find it to be ineffective, an important component to it is looking at a criminal's MO or modus operandi. A modus operandi is someone's habits of working, particularly in the context of business or criminal investigations. The term is often used in police work when discussing crime and addressing the methods employed by criminals. Cornell Law used the following example, quote, In a case involving the armed robbery of a bank, the modus operandi would be that the perpetrator wore a purple cowboy hat, possessed a gold gun with mother of pearl handles, was heard humming the tune to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and put the money in a black Gucci bag. The evidence is so specific that it uniquely identifies the defendant as its perpetrator in the case at hand. End quote. During the 1982 trial of Angelo Bono, California's notorious hillside strangler, who we talked about in a previous case episode, the prosecution relied on modus operandi evidence to show similarities in the deaths of 10 victims. Ted Bundy's MO is often described as luring a victim in with charm or a fake injury to kidnap her, then rape, and bludgeoning or strangulation. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the crimes of Ted Bundy. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on Amber Hagerman. As always, stay safe.